Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined again by one of our R&D chemists, Autumn Phillips, and our two production coordinators, Jody Wall and Nick Plymel. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 5 on nebulizers, spray chambers, and torches. If you would like to follow along with us, you can review the, view the ICP Operations Guide on our website, www.inorganicventures.com. So let's kick things off with nebulizers. Autumn, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So there's lots of different types of nebulizers out there. Some of the more common ones are the glass or the plastic concentric nebulizers. And so these are going to be the ones that are self-aspirating, or you can have them on free flow where you can have your sample running through without using a peristaltic pump. But you can use it either way if you need a higher sample flow for a peri pump. But a lot of times these are going to have, well, they always have, a really small inner diameter. So if you have something that is going to be thicker, more viscous, like a organic sample, or if you have any type of suspended solids or really high TDS, you may need to get a larger inner diameter nebulizer, something like a crossflow or a V-groove type nebulizer. Um, but it's really going to depend on what your sample type is. And again, your goals and your detection limits that are needed. There's also a lot of adjustments that need to be made on your instrument if you're going to switch between nebulizers. So one of those is the nebulizer flow rate. Usually the nebulizer itself will have a flow rate that is kind of optimal from the instrument manufacturer. So if you're not sure, I would just reach out to whoever made the nebulizer to see what type of flow that is going to be better. But you can also do adjustments yourself to optimize the nebulizer flow. So if you just start aspirating a sample or maybe your optimization solution or something that's pretty easy where you can monitor a good sensitivity line, you can adjust the flow rate of the nebulizer to see where you're going to get optimal sensitivity and the best RSDs. So a lot of this can be done in-house, but it's a lot easier to start off with just whatever the manufacturer recommends as a starting point. And it can also be different between nebulizers of the same type. So we've had this in-house with a couple of our plastic concentric nebulizers where they'll be they'll want different flow rates or be optimal at different flow rates between serial numbers. So a lot of it is going to take a little bit of work on your part. But once you get it optimized, you can just use that nebulizer flow for that nebulizer and it should work pretty well. Another thing you want to be aware of is what's in your sample. So if you have HF, any type of HF in the sample, you'll want to use a plastic nebulizer rather than a glass. And that's going to be this, the case for your entire intro system. Any glass that you have with HF, it's going to be caustic to that. So you're going to get really high boron and silicon results and inconsistent results for those. So if you do have HF, you do have to kind of invest a little bit in an HF resistant intro system. But any of the nebulizers that you have, you're going to, they do require quite a bit of maintenance. 
So you can get nebulizer clogging, especially with higher TDS samples. Um, so if you do get a clog, it probably is going to shut down your plasma. So we recommend for cleaning, if it's something really bad, you may need to soak the nebulizer for a little bit, but then just rinsing it so you can flush it backwards to try and get dislodge any of the clogs that are in there. And I know Jody and Nick have a lot of experience with these nebulizer problems. Yeah, a lot of instrument manufacturers actually will send a sort of syringe now that you can use to back flush a nebulizer to try to get rid of any clogs over it. So that's been really helpful for some of our nebulizers that we've had over the past couple of years. Yeah, and that recent issue that Autumn was just talking about where we discovered that some of our nebulizers, that even though they're the same nebulizer, had slightly different optimal flows. Um, that's one of the reasons that we have started keeping track by serial number of what nebulizers in what instrument, because uh, we have multiple ones around here. And they use the same nebulizer, and we were kind of just grabbing whatever nebulizer is clean, but now we're looking into just assigning them to an actual instrument so we can always have that optimal flow on that instrument. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, like qualifying and make sure your, you know, your sample intro system components are really the best fit for your application to produce the best results possible, especially if you're really chasing, you know, detection limits or developing a new method. All of that work can be time consuming, but once you get everything dialed in, it should make your life a whole lot easier. So let's talk about spray chambers next. So the nebulizer is going to aerosol your, you know, aerosolize your sample. The spray chamber is really designed to make sure that those droplets from the aerosol, that it only allows, you know, consistently sized droplets to go up to the torch. So Nick, do you want to kick us off and talk about spray chambers? Sure. So there's two different main types of spray chambers that you're going to see. You'll either see uh, cyclonic spray chambers or you will see Scott double pass spray chambers. Here at IV, we pretty much exclusively use the cyclonic models. That's going to allow for some sort of better rinsing, I believe, for the most part. The Scott double pass, you can actually run higher total dissolved solids through. So it's really going to depend on what sort of samples you're putting through in terms of which one's going to be better for your intro system. Just like with the nebulizers, you want to look at the actual material that the spray chamber is made out of. You can buy these in glass and plastic bottles. And again, that's going to really come down to, are you running HF samples through, or are you going to run something through that's going to stick to glass, something like that? That's going to really drive what type of spray chamber material you would like. So anything that you're running HF through, definitely run a plastic system, but you're going to have a couple of issues with that. Over time, the coating on the inside of a plastic spray chamber will wear out. You could actually send that back to get it recoded. That's what we usually do with ours. It's a lot cheaper than actually buying a new spray chamber. And when you're seeing that, you'll actually see something like having washout issues with boron. That's going to build up in your spray chamber a lot more quickly when that coating is not well-maintained. If you're using a glass spray chamber, you want to look out for a couple elements such as silicon and boron. You might see higher background numbers of those just because of the makeup of the spray chamber. And of course, again, you're going to see certain things like mercury can stick to a plastic system or I believe osmium can stick to a glass system a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So there's certain things that you want to look at in terms of washout issues when you're dealing with some of your spray chambers. Perfect. How would you guys recommend to, you know, the best way to clean spray chambers? So the thing that I would recommend is making sure that 
You've got a couple of spray chambers on rotation, just like Jody said we do with our nebulizers. You can wash them out while they're on the system by running washout solutions such as various dilutions of acid, either nitric or hydrochloric acid. You can even run dilute RBS solution through Like here, we actually run 2.5% RBS solution through at the end of some of our runs to help clean out those systems. But beyond that, you can actually take the spray chamber off, actually soak it in an RBS solution overnight, pull it out the next morning, rinse it off in a DI water system, and make sure that it's completely dry before putting back on the system. So that's the best way to maintain it that we have found. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with what RBS is, we use it all the time in our lab. It's called RBS-25. It's basically a detergent, laboratory detergent that you can purchase. As Nick mentioned, we buy you know the concentrated version, and then we make 25% solutions for soaking different labware in, and then we make 2.5% solutions if we actually want to aspirate it through the instruments. And it does a really good job at you know sort of doing some cleanup. But if you're aspirating that RBS solution, it's really important that afterwards you also rinse out with water because there is what it's high sodium or potassium in RBS, right? It's really sodium. nice in sodium. Yep. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's finish off by talking about some torches. So Jody, I know that we use either, you know, full glass torches or demountable torches. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, we've got a couple of each one. So with your full torch, basically just the whole thing is one part from beginning to end. You've got your injector is connected to your outer tube, is connected to the part that, you know, connects to the instrument. And the good thing about these is they're totally optimized, right? Your Everything is the right length because it's all together. When you're cleaning it, you're cleaning it all together. But the con is that same thing that's the pro it's all together so you have to take out the whole torch everything's down while you're cleaning so the demountable torches are where everything is a separate piece so you have your piece that connects to the instrument you have your outer tube that then you can screw off and on from that you have your injector that it's separate so you can take that in and out so the good thing about that is that you can switch out one or the other you can have a clean tube waiting and you can switch it out if something happens or a clean injector waiting. You can also switch materials. You can have either a glass outer tube or a ceramic outer tube. You can have a injector that is glass or quartz or sapphire. So you can kind of mix and match to what you you need for your sample. But there's a lot of optimization that goes along with that because you can get Like I said, just the different materials, but also different lengths of things. You can have different lengths of injector. And you want to make sure that's optimized to your particular outer tube or your particular instrument settings. We actually, when we first got our first demountable torch, we went through quite a few injectors trying to find the right one that would fit our system. We just kept, we'd come in the next morning and the end of the injectors just shattered because it was in the wrong spot. And that took some doing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we were uh, an early adopter of the demountable torch technology, but is paid off, I think, dividends for us because we were using pretty much exclusively full body glass torches and they would get, have to get replaced and repaired, you know, very frequently. And we don't even run that difficult of samples usually, but just the price on replacing those was, was so much compared to once we got a demountable torch and got everything optimized. I mean, really, we're not replacing much unless we actually, you know, drop one during cleaning and and accidentally break it, right? 
Yeah. Or if, you know, something bad happens in your run and it runs really hot, it doesn't get enough rinse solution or it gets some air in there. Those are really the only bad things that happen to them. Definitely. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, just best practice whenever you're, you know, optimizing your, your system or picking out the parts, really just base it off of what your application is. If you have high total dissolved solids, uh, if that's your sample type, that's going to be something, you know, a different system than if you're running just regular, you know, drinking water samples. It really all depends. But the nice thing about these instruments is you can really swap these in, in and out pretty quickly. I mean, especially the newer models are getting, I think the instrument manufacturers have identified that maintenance was a key factor that was holding, you know, lab put lab throughput down. So they've done a really good job in the most recent models of trying to make maintenance as easy as possible. And I think you guys can speak more to that than I can. Yeah, again, going back to the torches and the demountable versus the full torch, you have to make sure, you know, back in the day, we had to make sure everything was lined up perfectly. And we'd have a a tiny little piece of index card where we marked off like two millimeters and you're trying to line up. And a lot of the new ones are just plug and play. They only go in one way and they go in the exact right spot, which is a lot better. Yep. And we've been able to do some more method validation based off of the different parts that we're using to make sure that we're getting the best detection limits or the best RSDs for whichever sample we're running. And like Jovi said, we're keeping maintenance logs to make sure that we're staying as consistent as possible with all of those things. So the validation can take some time to make sure that you've got all the parts that you would need to get the best results possible. But once you spend the time to do it, you really can get a lot of good use out of your instrument. Yeah. Another thing just to remember with torches is, because this has definitely happened to me before, they have to be completely dry before you reinstall them on your system or your plasma won't light. You can have a wet spray chamber or a wet nebulizer. It doesn't matter. But that torch has to be completely dry um, before you reinstall it in the system. So if you're in a hurry and you don't have time to let it air dry or dry in an oven, what we do a lot of times is we'll blow it out with nitrogen um, or a clean gas system to get those last little droplets out. So just something to keep in mind in case you're not sure why your plasma isn't starting. Your torch could be still wet from your cleaning process. Definitely a good tip. Well, we hope you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivignite at inorganicventures.com. If you would like to learn more, feel free to check out our virtual learning academy, Ivy Ignite. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 6 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss compatibility and precision issues. We hope you will join us then, and have a fantastic week. Thanks. Thanks.